thank you for returning for another time of examining privilege. Please consider heading over to Patreon and showing your support by sharing this podcast or the Patreon page with your friends on social media. You might be surprised just how many folks out there are hungry for the kind of conversation we're having right here. The last episode ended with Bill talking about redlining and how some people are so concerned about people taking advantage of the system, but not caring at all how the system takes advantage of all of us. Welcome to episode 11. Let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. It's it's worth mentioning also, just for our audience, because we're in a listening format, it's worth mentioning that Bill and I are both white, um, that we've worked together intimately over the last year, um, uh, and that we know, we're at least somewhat aware, that this has to shift, that we have benefited from this system, and that it can't work anymore. Um, you, is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do want to say something about that. I want to say that myself, I was caught up in the dream for a long time. I, As a child, I, I very much questioned why adults acted different with, when they had different skin colors, why most of the shows I watched that weren't cartoons involved uh, just white people, why there was a channel called Black Entertainment Television, um, why my dad didn't want me to listen to rap music. Um, I had many best friends that were black, uh, and I noticed no difference between us um, other than our skin color, and I, it just made no sense to me. As I got older, I started to I, I started to kind of seep deeper into the dream and started to have uh, uh, biases and, and fears. And I think it was until I lived in uh, I lived in New Orleans uh, one summer. I'm originally from there, and uh, I lived there one summer during college and uh, lived in a neighborhood that was um, I was one of the few white people that lived in that neighborhood and. Um, and I, it was just very interesting starting to kind of immerse myself uh, into that world and start to uh, start to see, I guess, the uh, the privilege I had, uh, mm-hmm. and started to kind of wake up to it. Um, and I think what kind of was a turning point for me was when I lived in Chicago and got arrested for something I didn't do, got roughed up by the cops, uh, and as a white guy that was you know finally able to call an attorney and and kind of deal with it i guess in a way um i started to see that things could be a hell of a lot worse if i wasn't white and and didn't have access to certain things and uh, and then i started to look even deeper into uh, my privilege and and saw that well because i came from uh this family that was afforded certain things and that allowed me to be afforded certain things and I, I had an advantage. I had a head start. I had, I got to live in suburbs with nice schools. Uh, and you know, even just saying that feels kind of weird, right? I say nice schools, and these nice schools were majority white and had a lot of funding because of the way we fund our schools. Uh, and anyway, I guess what I've kind of woken up to lately is that I had this big head start. And uh, and that said, what that head start got me was 
putting me into this world of compliance and pushing me into, mm. uh, you know, this career that seemed like something I should do to make money, to, uh, to keep up with the Joneses and to live in this dream. And I realized that this dream that is created, um, wasn't serving me either. And it didn't seem to be serving many people around me, regardless of their color. And yep. so it, I finally have woken up to this, that this dream was bullshit and it was created to, serve the dogma of capitalism not to actually serve the people at all and so by buying into this dream we're buying into something that's not authentic to who we are and is is just it's not right for who we are as humans and and what we're truly capable of yeah well said yeah it hey i'm kind of jealous i gotta admit because i think the dream hung on for me well into my 30s um and it, it it, very much. I my family um, did not have a whole lot of privilege, and that I think was part of why it hung on so long for me. Um, my parents were public school teachers. I've talked about that a couple of times. Uh, what I haven't talked about is what that actually meant. It meant um, uh, I remember brushing our teeth with baking soda because we couldn't. I, I didn't know this at the time, but the reason we were doing that and it was awful uh, was because they didn't have money for toothpaste. Um, I remember my dad riding his bike to school, which was all the way across town. Um, and I thought he just liked to ride his bike. He did weird things like that. He stayed in shape. He went running in the mornings. He, you know, um, I thought he was a weirdo. Um, <laughs> but he, he rode his bike in his three-piece brown suit, his only suit for years, um, with his trumpet. He was a band director, so he had his trumpet and then his music scores, these oversized big pieces of music that he would strap in these weatherproof cases on the back of his bike, on this 10-speed bike, and then ride it all the way across town. Um, no, it turned out we didn't have money to put gas in the car because uh, it was the end of the month. Um, uh, I re my mom made our, uh, made our clothes, made a lot of our clothes, so I had these T-shirts that people would make fun of and try to rip. Um, it was part of the, where I got bullied so terribly. Um, and I, I'd ask her if she could put one of those little, this was the eighties and put one of those little tigers on my shirt so that maybe I'd fit in a little better. That conformity that you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. I, and the worst part is I look back now and I think how insulting to my mom who'd spent all this time clothing us literally with her hands, um, mm -hmm. to be told constantly, I, I wish you'd just bought that off the fucking rack. Um, mm -hmm. Like just the, the tie, like what poverty does, um, in, in a country rooted in consumerism, rooted in the need to have those differences. Um, it was awful, but that's, I mean, for me, I think that played a large role when I hear people talking about, well, I don't have privilege cause you know, this, that, and the other thing I get where they're coming from. Cause that, that was me. Um, I made that argument for years, um, I, I wrote an angry letter to the <laughs> to the principal, I think about this, of my child's school uh, when they were celebrating uh, Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day, arguing that I don't remember if I sent it. And I'm, I'm hoping I didn't because I don't remember sending it, but I know I wrote the damn thing, arguing that, you know, why why can't I ever be proud of, of you know, being from Western Europe? Um but that, that was, for me, the, the wake-up came when I had um, a, a really gut-wrenching, soul-searching experience um, in clinical pastoral education. This, it's one of the programs I went through in, 
as I was becoming a pastor, um, which I've left and I'm now an atheist. So we're going to have that. We're going to talk about that another time. But um, but it, the formative process was really uh, impactful to me. And, and uh, one of my mentors, um, this wonderful Buddhist man, sat there looking at me and said, well, it doesn't matter whether you think you're white or not. Other people think you're white. And therefore, they ascribe privilege to you. And that mechanism flipped in my head because it it articulated for me one of the disconnects of like the what I call the Thanksgiving flan. <laughs> my 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 grandparents house we'd go there for Thanksgiving and we'd have flan and none of the white kids at my school knew what the hell that was. Um uh, in fact it got made fun of around it. Um so it yeah, there were all these little inconsistencies that said we aren't we aren't white. Um, and I just didn't know what to do with it because it's also a bullshit. I, I I can't remember if we've talked about this, but whiteness is bullshit. That's one of the things Coates just nails is it's it's not an actual culture. It's a lack of culture. Yeah, yeah. He, he refers to like people that believe they're white. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, when I when I think of that, you know, it's gentrification, it's whitewashing, you know, it's, yep. it's these you know, these words that have meaning and then the, on the other side, you know, b- black market, blacklisting, you know, these, these mm-hmm. connotations of white and black automatically mean good and bad. But I think the deeper than that is that in order to be white, it must be uh, it must be stripped of culture because it needs to conform to whatever the container is. Yes. And the container is whatever those in power can gain from it. And so, you know, I, I feel so grateful that I am from a place like New Orleans because I think that's you know, one of the very few places in America that still, uh, in, in a lot of ways, still kind of holds on to its culture. That said, I went there this past December as a little kind of pilgrimage for myself, and I realized how much it's changing. And I realized that it's now like in the top five of the most gentrified cities in the country. Yeah. And there's so much of it that is still just it's hanging on to that, that deep culture, but so much of it that's still just being changed uh, to... To become a more quote safe place, right, right. Yeah. But instead of whitewash, they call it safer yeah. and cleaner. And you yeah. know these words, Code that, words. Uh, you know, yeah, that, that clean, safe, uh, you know, are meant to be, um, you know, they're it's code words for racism that are just meant to be, you know, whiter. Yeah. And well, why why are places that have less black people uh, or have more black people rather seen as dirty or dangerous? Uh, I think what we've done is we've confused the effect with the cause and thinking that, well, because black people are there, it's dangerous instead of, oh, wait, well, we've stripped all resources and put them in specific areas that have mm. nothing to, to help them and no levels of support. And that's why. Yeah. I, I have to circle back to something you just said, um, yeah. that we have to be – that whiteness is being stripped of culture – so that we can fit into the container. Uh, and it was one other bit that you said that like the whole thing, just like, I'm going to listen back to this and write that down because <laughs> you nailed something really vital to what is required um, of us, especially as white men. Um, Cause it, we're talking right now a lot about race. The same thing happens around gender. The same thing happens around um, being able bodied or being uh, uh, quote unquote Christian um, like yeah. there's all these assumptions around the, what I call the container of the, the mold of the great white male. Um, and that's exactly what you said is absolutely true that anything that doesn't fit that mold gets cut away. Um, yeah. and who's being, well, and it's, 
Yeah, go. I, I was just saying it's it's compromising who we are to fit in. It's going back to you know you wanting to put uh, you know the, the tiger on your shirt and yep. me thinking back to you know when I was in middle school and high school and wanting to have you know the Abercrombie and Fitch clothes so that I could fit in with people and you know it's I, I wanted to be a part of that container. And when we look at this at a bigger scale, you know, in the terms of I guess cities and gentrification, it's uh, you know it's places like you know New Orleans that are like people want to come here and we are a tourist city, but people think that it's dangerous. People think if they're walking down the French Quarter in a dark alley, that they're going to get mugged. And you know, crime history or crime statistics show that yeah, that's a that's a very likely probability. But instead of saying you know let's let's fix this by investing in our neighborhoods, they say well no, let's just force these people out by raising the rents let's allow more vacation homes and airbnbs and and just shift this into a place where we have a lot more money coming into the city from more rich people that we can just pump in and create new places that fit this new image of what we want so that we can continue to gain more all at the sacrifice of the culture that made this place what it really is i I think the the most the thing that The gut punch on that topic right there is that time and time again, when we see, and I mean, we just watched this with the COVID um, relief money that went out. Um, the time and time again, the focus of the the decision makers, the what I, the folks that I say have absolute power in this country, the, yeah, one of them we we've mentioned Trump, you know. He's a perfect example of absolute power. He can say, I, I grab him and buy the pussy. They let me and still get elected president. Um, it, that's a level of absolute power and absolute privilege that is, there's no comparison. But there's this constant narrative from then, them that um, the money, like, like you just said, the money will come in. We'll be able to get more wealthy people in here. Um the money will come in if we make them feel safer. And time and time again, when we look at economic models and economic results, where we see that when we put money in the hands of um, poor folks and uh, middle-class folks, they're the ones that boost the overall economy. That is not the Trumps that we want visiting uh, the French Quarter in New Orleans. It's everybody. That that's how you get a really vibrant scene um, in any sense of the word. And so if you're, this is the part that is always counterintuitive. So even if your goal is more money, more profit, that kind of a thing, the best way to do it is to get more wealth in the hands of people who spend their entire paycheck. Well, that would also give them more power. <laughs> That's a big threat. That's, this is true. <laughs> Nailed it. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, but and we just watched this with the COVID distribution package. It was an article today that uh, a church in Texas that's hosted Pence um, got uh, some kind of a loan, three to five million dollars or something like that um, of this money. And and we've got folks who are, as, as I mentioned, about to be evicted. Um, so why is that money going to these large organizations, why did billions of dollars of relief funds go to uh, banks? And well, we see why, because the Wall Wall Street's doing great. Um, the rest of us are about to lose our houses. Um, 
well, you don't think it'll trickle down that the, the church won't love thy neighbor and distribute it to the people that need housing? God, trickle down is Some churches do that. Like, how many times has this been disproven? Yeah, to say nothing of separation <laughs> of church and state, right? Um, yeah, there's another thing that is said constantly: the trickle down notion, and and it's just not the right. way economies work. Money trickles up. Um, if yeah. you want to have an up down, um, that's the way it it works. We're the ones that spend it. It's those of us that you know, don't have eight yachts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, going back to like Bacon's Rebellion and pushing, I guess, a little bit further to the, you know, Boston Tea Party and this like taxation without representation, you know, looking at us being taxed as a country and what we're able to or where are that money is actually going? Is that actually being reinvested in our communities? Uh, are, are the tax, is the tax money that we're spending actually coming back to give us the lives that we want to live? Do we have a say in that? Or is it just perpetuating the industrial complexes that we have very little to no say in uh, that's keeping us in this this state, this dream that we didn't really sign up to have? Yeah. And that in reality, none of us actually benefit from. Um, I mean, the, the Occupy movement from a few years ago um, – pointing to this one percent thing and i think that's the the biggest issue here is that it it really is a very very small minority one percent or maybe even less um that that hold this this absolute power um and the rest of us are actually in the same damn boat so there's there's why do we keep buying the lie of racism or race not racism racism is real but why do we keep buying them the lie of race? Why do we allow these things to separate us? I'm, I'm also intrigued by, you mentioned that part of your waking up process was walking into a, in, into space where you were the minority. And I've had this like constant notion that this is what is vital for, for us to do as, as what I call great white males, is that we have to be in spaces where we are the minority and we have to end up in a position where we listen, where we shut the fuck up and listen more than we talk. Um, because we, we bring that, that great white maleness, the, the oppressor, the, the colonizer with us wherever we go in our culture, even though we don't want it. And even though we didn't ask for it, even though we didn't earn it, that's the insidious nature of, of this. So can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how, how did you come about? How did you learn to like find your voice to lose or lose your voice to find your voice kind of a thing? Yeah, well, uh, I guess first of all, I, I wanted to live close to the French Quarter because I was working in the French Quarter that summer. And so I lived in a little neighborhood, uh, not Treme, which is right by the French Quarter, but a little bit past there called the Seventh Ward. And uh, I remember I was like subletting a place from someone. And my dad didn't want me to stay there. Uh, my dad said it was a it was an unsafe neighborhood, and uh, you know might have referred to the neighborhood as being dark. And uh, and I didn't I didn't care. I mean I thought you know whatever I'll live close to the French Quarter. I'm sure I'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, and you know living there it was it was different. It was uh, I just I saw people kind of uh, just like riding bikes around in the streets and you know i guess i had also lived kind of up in the midwest at the time and so being in you know a, a southern city uh with a lot of people that didn't look like me or talk like me or act like me uh 
I found it interesting. I've always loved traveling for that reason that, uh, uh, and I think Tony Sikos even talks about this when he goes to Paris and, you know, he feels like a fish out of water and he gets yes. to just like observe and soak everything in. And, um, and that's really how I felt. And, um, I remember this one specific time I was walking, uh, I walked, I would either ride my bike or walk to the French quarter. I rarely drove or got a cab or anything. And so I was, you know, constantly near people and interacting with people. And I walked under the, the I-10 bridge, uh, crossing Claiborne Avenue and, uh, there was this guy named Tadpole, uh, this black guy under the bridge that uh, I think he was a pimp because he's like, he's like, hey, you looking for someone tonight? And I'm like, I'm like, no, I'm good. And then he had this woman coming by. He's like, look, I got my girl for you. And I'm like, I'm good, man. I'm, I'm sure I'll find one down in the quarter tonight. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right, you have fun. And uh, it's just a normal interaction and just a normal guy trying to, you know, hustling, doing his thing, uh, you know, trying to make his bread, you know, whatever, it, it, whatever he's got to do, right? And uh, and it was something where I've um, I've been in New Orleans a bunch, and as a kid I was there a lot, and you know my dad's lived there for most of his life, and and I'd walk around downtown with him, and he would just ignore anyone, whether it's a homeless person asking for money or someone you know maybe accosting him in that way, uh, and you know for me I like I stopped by there and I had a quick conversation with him. It wasn't much, but you know I I saw him as a human just trying to do what he could do to get by, and you know he had a smile on his face, and he was he was living life as he could. And, uh, it just opened me up to this, uh, I guess something that I've just recently kind of come to understand as othering, uh, mm-hmm. something where because someone looks different, seems different, is from somewhere different that they are other. But that was a humanizing moment where I saw us as people and human and connected in a, in a way. You know, it was just for a short interaction, but but the othering kind of went away. And I've recently, after talking with veterans and hearing their accounts of uh, of what's instilled in their minds uh, in, in in war, uh, it's this othering, and that's how they're able to dehumanize and, and kill other people without it kind of affecting them. You know, at least in the moment, uh, is this othering, and that's come up quite a bit in in these conversations about race. Uh, in, in a way that enables us to kind of remove our heart and remove this deep connection that we have with others as human beings by othering them and placing them in a category as subhuman. Yeah. And I, and I also kind of, I, like, I can't let it slip by too the, the inherent sexism of women being traded as property like that. Sure. Right. Like in the tie right into this whole thing of here, we have the wheels within the wheels within the wheels because even mm-hmm. as we are addressing race, there's this notion that, you know, women can be traded for sex, uh, for money. Right. Um, and that, like, that this is the insidious nature of, uh, bluntly, I would say capitalism, but it's patriarchy, it's capitalism, it's uh, white supremacist, it's it, it's all of these bits and pieces that, that make up a country that treats all humans as disposable. Um, and the earth is disposable which none of these things are true. Um, one of the things I love about Coates' writing is he, he makes it so clear that you are su- like each and every individual human is such a precious being. Um, and that's, that's very present. And yeah, that, that notion of, okay, so there's differences here. Yeah, and we have different experiences. But in the end, we, we also, we are people. Like that humanizing experience as opposed to the othering is so huge because it happens a million different ways. 
Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you for bringing that up. That's that's something I didn't even notice until you brought it up. And yeah, what a what a better city for an example of that than New Orleans, with you know its yeah uh, just its history of of oppression in so many different ways, and of you know using women as entertainment and mm-hmm. using black people to you know to build and, and create the city as as what it is. And uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, interesting catch there. Thank you for that. How do racism and sexism go hand in hand? The dangerous part about all of this is that we're not just fighting to end one type of oppression. We're working to end all systems of oppression. Because the thing we're up against here is a system that wants us to believe that inequality and inequity are tied to our intrinsic worth as people. When people spout about the notion of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, there's an inverse message received loud and clear. If you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's because you didn't just didn't work hard enough, you didn't care enough, or you aren't worth saving anyway. Thanks for tuning in. Who are you sharing this with today? Go do it. Looking forward to seeing you on Wednesday for episode 12.